From Boys to Men, a new Jewish book arrives, not a moment too soon, but will it be accepted by the Haredi community? What do Kanye, Roger, and Berkeley College have in common? You guessed it, anti-Semitism. We're going to break that down. And what's happening in Israel? Rudy Rockman is here, and we're going to talk about the Palestinian terror situation and how to stop it. Is love the answer? I don't think so, but he does. This is the Weekly Squeeze. I'm your incredibly talented and humble host, Hanala, coming at you from the land of Israel. I hope wherever you are, you are having a wonderful holiday. We certainly are enjoying ourselves here in the land of Israel. The streets are full. Yerushalayim is happening. The shook is bouncing. Family is in town. Cousins are around. Everybody's getting together, hanging out, and enjoying the cool breeze that has descended upon the Middle East now that it is October. This morning there were rain clouds in the sky, which doesn't mean immediately rain, but it's coming, and we are excited and waiting for it because rain is a blessing in the land of Israel. You know what's not a blessing in the land of Israel? Arab terrorists. Palestinian rioters who, as we speak, are trashing their own neighborhoods, throwing firebombs, setting trash cans on fire, throwing firecrackers, uh, blocking the roads, trying to harm the security forces, and just creating absolute chaos as Israel goes into their villages and seeks out the terrorists who continue to harm, maim, and traumatize Israeli people for living in the country that belongs to the Jewish people. That's right. And by the way, it's complete chaos. I mean, this is not just a couple of rolling tires, the kind of stuff that happens here on a regular Tuesday. All around Israel, neighborhoods, Arab neighborhoods specifically, um, have been on lockdown since two Israeli soldiers have been murdered by terrorists who managed to get away. Last week, 18-year-old soldier Noah Lazar was killed by a terrorist who jumped out of a car at a security check and then ran away. And then this week, Sergeant Ido Baruch was also killed by a terrorist. And now Israeli soldiers are looking for these terrorists. And how do they look for them? Well, they have to go into the villages and they have to arrest the cousins and the brothers and figure out where these murderers are and, and bring them to justice. So the Israeli soldiers have to put their lives at risk, go into these villages where the Palestinians, who, by the way, are all basically terrorist wannabes, are throwing firecrackers and bricks and and grenades and whatnot, tons of illegal weapons that have been funneled in from other Arab countries, thank you very much, around the world. All of these guys that end up getting injured or killed in these Arab towns and villages, they're all militants. Everyone over the age of 18 is a terrorist wannabe. So Israel has their hands full, and it's not pleasant to go into these neighborhoods where masked rioters are throwing Molotov cocktails and bricks and anything they could get their hands on in order to, to harm more Israelis. It, they, it, they basically set this trap where they commit a terrorist attack, Israel has to respond, the Arabs put themselves and their children and their babies and their women and they're innocent people, into these situations where, you know, violence erupts on the streets. And yes, innocent bystanders get hurt and killed. That's what happens. Whose fault is it? It's the Palestinians' fault. It's always the Palestinians' fault. Don't let anyone convince you otherwise. All right? So right now we have two more policemen injured, possibly by a pipe bomb. And then you have the entire world going AWOL on Israel for defending itself against Arab 
Islamic radical terrorism. Now, add that to the fact that right now everyone's talking about the Jews. Whether you're on Twitter, whether you've turned on the news or opened a newspaper or just, you know, went to the kiddish club in your neighborhood sukkah and schmoozed a little bit, you know that everybody's talking about Kanye West and how, thanks to him, anti-Semitism is back in the news. You tried Miami Boys Choir, you had your moment, but Kanye stole it like he stole Taylor Swift's moment. (laughs) All right, so... Let's get into specifics, and you'll see how all of this actually is interconnected. It all comes together. At the end of the day, the entire Middle East conflict, the entire anti-Semitic problem of the left and the right comes down to one simple thing. Everybody hates the Jews. Now, of course, you can't generalize because that would be bigoted, but a lot of people hate the Jews. And if you're anywhere in your social media You can see that with your own eyes. But let's break down exactly what happened with Kanye and why we are all discussing Ben Shapiro. (laughs) No matter what happens, Ben Shapiro is always in the news with his opinion. We waited for him two days of Yom Tif so he can get online and then finally he tweeted and it was a little underwhelming, but he did say his piece. How did he get involved? Where do Kanye and Ben Shapiro cross paths Uh, I'm going to break it down for you. Okay, so Kanye West, if you've never heard of him, he's an artist. He's a little loony. He calls himself a provocateur. Right now he goes by Yee. And he has a very large Instagram social media following. Safe to say he has more followers on Twitter than there are Jewish people altogether. So he got on Twitter during the first day of Yom and he tweeted the following. He said that, He's a little bit tired, but tomorrow he's going to go death con three on the Jewish people and some other strange comments that made no sense about how Jews and blacks are the same people and just something really bizarre. And then he left it overnight. Then Itaka went to sleep and the rest of the world went crazy because what is he talking about? Why is Kanye West going death con three? What is death con three? Okay. And Who's going to defend him? And yes, there were people who defended him. So what happened? Twitter removed the post right away. But in the meantime, Candace Owens, who is a conservative talk show host that works for Daily Wire, which is Ben Shapiro's radio show, podcast, website, his network, his programming, she defended Kanye by saying, well, I don't even know. Who knows what DEFCON 3 is? Did anyone understand that tweet? How could it be anti-Semitic? if nobody knows what he's even talking about. So, I, I, listen, did it make sense? No. Did he use the word death and Jew in the same tweet? Yes. So in my book, that's already like, uh, uh, you know, you cross the line right there. And we did have the Holocaust and a lot of people died there. So we're very careful not to talk about Jews and death, especially if we're tweeting out to a bajillion people and then we're going to sleep. So right now, the... Internet is ablaze. A Kanye throws a match and gets into his very expensive, fancy thousand thread sheets. Shlovska is under hate and wakes up to a world on fire. Plus, an interview that he did with Tucker Carlson comes out. And in that interview, which I watched a clip of, he he's so he's such a nut. He explained he he says how he would prefer for his children to celebrate Hanukkah because then they can learn about finances. I don't know some Michigan thing like that. 
The point of the matter is the black people were offended, <laughs> the Jews were offended, and everyone in between. And Candace is just trying to make heads and tails of this because last week she was hanging out with Kanye and wearing a White Lives Matter t-shirt. So now she's on Team Kanye, so she has to, you know, defend him. Plus, Kanye is one of the Trump-supporting celebrities, so we can't let that go to waste. If he was a Democrat and he voted for Hillary, then, of course, we would just call him an anti-Semite and move on with our lives. But because he's a Trump supporter, Candace, as a conservative, had to vouch for what he was saying by saying that nothing he said actually made any sense. And we shouldn't call him an anti-terrorist, anti-terrorist, <laughs> anti-Semite, because he really is just confused and overtired. Meanwhile, Bell Harbor, Ben Shapiro is enjoying second day emptive, blissfully unaware that everybody is waiting to hear what he has to say. And lo and behold, a couple hours after Yamtif was over and Ben Shapiro finished questioning his life choice <laughs> as a conservative pundit in 2022, he tweeted, back from the Jewish holiday now, as usual, two things can be true at once. Kanye's uh, moves towards pro-life, faith, and family conservatism are encouraging. His DEFCON 3 posts and black Hebrew-Israelite language are clearly anti-Semitic and disturbing. So that's where we're holding. On top of it, of course, Roger Waters was on a podcast with Joe Rogan. Now, if you don't know who Roger Waters is, lucky you. Happens to be, I was never interested in Pink Floyd. It just never came my way. And I am more grateful than ever that I didn't expose myself to that garbage because the lead singer, former Pink Floyd frontman Roger Water, who is an extreme example of a virulent anti-Semite, he was on the Joe Rogan podcast. And this is what he said. He said, the Israelis seem now to have a policy of murdering so many Palestinians that they're absolutely trying to create another intifada so they can make it an armed conflict when they're a thousand times, 10,000 times more powerful than the Palestinian people so they could just kill them all, okay? This is what he said on the air. He said the Palestinians and Hamas have absolute legal and moral rights to resist the occupation. And then he went on to minimize the impact of the rocket attacks that the Palestinian terrorists shoot at us relentlessly for days at a time by saying that the rockets almost never do any damage because they're very ineffectual. And this is what the world is hearing. This is what the world is hearing on the most popular podcast in America. Absolute and complete lies. And the scary thing is, the more you say it and the more you repeat it, the more they believe it. And considering how many people support Kanye West, even though they know he is bipolar and not stable, I am not surprised. That is why it is so important to continue to reiterate the truths about Israel, its policies, its philosophies, and its purpose. The purpose of Israel always has been and always will be to provide a safe haven for Jewish people from all over the world no matter where they are, no matter what they've been through, so that they can come live here and live in peace. Literally, that's how we say hello in this country. Shalom. Peace. That's all we want. We don't even want Amazon Prime. We don't want any surprises at our door. All we want is peace. And to suggest for one second that Israeli parents want to send their innocent children on Chag, on Jewish holidays, to go deal with these insane terrorists is, is insane in and of itself. Why would any country want to provoke 
terrorists, radical Islamic terrorists, to murder innocent people. We don't even have to provoke them. They're doing it anyway. More than 67% of Palestinians believe that armed attacks are effective to end, quote, occupation, which is the most idiotic word because they're occupying me. This whole shtick. Let, let, let's clear up a few things. Let's clear up 10 deadly lies against Israel that the world continues to perpetuate so that when you have the opportunity, you could be clear on what is right and what is wrong so that the anti-Semites of this world don't have the bottom line in any argument or conversation. Number one, Israel is trying to change the status quo on the Temple Mount. False. The truth is that even though the Temple Mount is Judaism's holiest site, where King Solomon built the temple 3,000 years ago, Israel will not allow a change in status quo. The, The ones trying to change the status quo are the Palestinians, who are constantly violently trying to prevent Jews and Christians from even visiting a site that's holy to all three faiths. Two, Israel seeks to destroy the Al-Aqsa Mosque. False! Since 1967, Israel has vigorously protected the holy sites of all faiths, including Al-Aqsa. In the Middle East, where Islamics desecrate and destroy churches, synagogues, heritage sites, and each other's mosques, Israel is the only guarantor of Jerusalem's holy places. That is a myth. The Al-Aqsa is in danger is a myth since 1929, when the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Hajamin al-Husseini, he decided he's going to use that concept to inspire a massacre of Jews in Hebron, where a horrific massacre took place, and nearly a century later, their mosque remains unharmed. But the lie persists. Three, because of settlement construction, that's why we have violence. False. Annual construction in the settlements has decreased over the last 20 years. Under Prime Minister Ehud Barak, 5,000 new units were built. Under Ariel Sharon, 1,881. Under Ehud Olmart, 1,774. All three of those were hailed as, all three of those prime ministers were hailed as peacemakers. What about under Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu? 1,554 between 2009 and 2015. Some surge. The only thing that keeps surging is terrorism. Number four, President Abbas says that Israel executed the innocent Palestinian Ahmed Manasra. False. He's neither innocent nor dead. He stabbed a 13-year-old Jewish boy riding his bicycle. Okay, so that's where, where that's at. Number five, Israel uses excessive force in dealing with terrorist attacks. False. So much so that the chairman of the religious Zionist party that everybody's talking about, right-wing Batala Smotrich, he called for the IDF forces to be brought into the streets of Jerusalem. He said, this is not disorderly conduct by civilians, but a war against an enemy. And in war, like in any war, the IDF has to protect the civilians. So they were brought out in large numbers, and they should impose a curfew on them, stamp out terrorist attacks with a heavy hand, and shoot anyone who picks up a rock, a firebomb, a firework, or a weapon. And let me tell you something. Is we laugh about it all the time here in Israel. Until a soldier shoots. First he shoots the air, then he shoots behind him, then he shoots upside down, then he does a circle, then he sings Havanagila, then he does a little horror dance, and then he shoots the terrorist in the leg. What a joke. Number six. The current violence is a result of stagnation in the peace process. False. Israel experienced the worst terrorism in its history when peace processes were taking place. Palestinians don't 
do terrorism because of progress or not progress in the peace process. All they care about is destroying Israel. End of story. Number seven, President Abbas is a voice of moderation. President Abbas is a president terrorist. He said in his own words that he welcomes every drop of blood spilled in Jerusalem. He's never condemned any of the terrorist attacks. He and Fatah, they continue to use the internet and any means possible to incite Palestinians to even more violence. He is president terrorist. Number eight, we need international action to enforce the status quo of the Temple Mount. False. Israel enforces the status quo. That's just the way it is. Everyone else could mind their own business and keep out. And that's what you say. Number nine. The reason the conflict and the violence persist is because the Palestinians don't have a state. False. The Palestinians have repeatedly refused to accept a nation state. All the Palestinians want is that Israel shouldn't exist. In 1937, they didn't want, they rejected the Peel Commission. In 1947, they rejected the UN partition. In 2000 at Camp David, again, the Palestinians rejected the proposals. It's always no for them because they're not interested in their well-being. They're only interested in destroying the Jewish state and then creating a state of of their own. Good luck with that. You ever heard the expression, it's because Arabs have two left hands. So good luck creating a, a a nation of your own. And number 10, Palestinian terrorism is the consequence of Palestinian frustration. And this is something we're going to discuss with Rudy. But before he gets here, false. Palestinian terrorism is a product of incitement. It's a culture of hatred and violence that is passed on from generation to generation. And the biggest frustration of the terrorists is that they have failed to destroy Israel. Guess what, folks? They will continue to be frustrated. This week's episode of The Weekly Squeeze has been brought to you by Just Bread and Butter. It's yumtiv here in Israel, and there are children all over the country that don't have fresh food in their fridge. There's no wick. There's no food stamps. An Israeli kid whose parents don't have enough money to feed their children, well, they're going to go to school hungry. And that's why a special fund was established to raise the money to supply bread, butter, milk, and eggs to the needy families. Bread and Butter families receive one 100 shekel voucher per child every month to be exchanged for milk, eggs, bread, and butter. Bread and Butter reimburses the stores for using those vouchers, and this simple method allows parents to maintain their dignity when shopping just like everybody else. There are so many ways to help. You can sponsor a child for a month, a family of 10 children for a month, a family of 10 children for a year, or any amount that you could afford. The link is in the show notes. Donate now, www.justbreadandbutter.org. Okay, there is a new book out from Mosaic Press, a printing house that calls themselves elegant, meaningful, and bold. And this is certainly a bold move. They are releasing a book, a concept, a topic that has never been taken by the horns like this before, a new book from Dr. Shlomi Zimmerman called From Boys to Men. Now, when we were kids, we got a book called The Wonder of Becoming You, How a Jewish Girl Grows Up. And it was it was fairly, you know, clear about the physiology and physicality of puberty and what happens in a girl's body when these changes happen. And obviously it was written in a very modest and clear way so that parents, educators, and young readers 
can turn to this book with confidence that they will learn all about the wonder of a girl, a Jewish girl, becoming a woman. Well, now we have a book about the wonder of a Jewish boy becoming a man. And it's basically uh, the wonder of becoming you on steroids. <laughs> now, there are a number of um, endorsements on the book from Big Rabbanim, including Rev Chaim Kanievsky, Rabbi Aaron Feldman of Baltimore, Rabbi Simchas Bonim Cohen of, I can't say, of Lakewood, Rabbi Twersky, a very respected author and psychologist, another psychologist, Benzion Sorotskin, um, David Pelkovich, psychologist, and it is a brilliantly done book. It provides chapters and chapters of conversation points for parents and children on marital intimacy, physical development, taivas and itzas zera, health and safety. There are chapters on sinful versus sick, normalizing the struggle, mitigating the challenge, boundaries and supervision, benefits of Torah adherence, factors that exacerbate the challenge, parenting, interventions, toolbox, slips and setbacks, and a conclusion. I am thrilled that this book exists. I hope parents buy this and take the time to have these conversations with their children. There's a summary of talking points after each chapter. And if you're one of those parents that clams up because your parents never spoke to you about anything unkosher, well, this is extremely helpful. So it, it covers the entire gamut. And it's done in a very clear and comfortable way. And I'm very impressed with it. I'll read you a, a little paragraph from the first uh, chapter two, Physical Developments. Do you understand what I said so far? You read to your child, do you have any questions? And then the book gives you instructions. Pause for five seconds. Wait for your son to formulate a question. In addition to giving him time to think, pausing for a while demonstrates that you are actually interested in his questions rather than it just being a formality. Really beautifully done. Uh, it goes on, all the things that I've talked about so far and which I will tell you about more are part of Hashem's amazing creation. In no way are they bad or secret. On the contrary, they are beautiful and holy. However, we try to only discuss this subject with appropriate adults, in part because it's a private topic and one which we keep tanua due to some of its holy aspects. Wow. Finally, gorgeous. Amazing. I'm going to put a link to this book in my show notes, only because I like when you visit my show notes. And while you're there, you know, give me a five-star rating. Thank you, Shani, for writing. Absolutely love this podcast. So light, fun, but also informative. Hanala is funny and entertaining. Such a great listen while I'm cooking. Thank you, Hanala. You're very welcome, Shani. Okay, you could let your kids back in the room, unless you're enjoying the fact that they found something to do that doesn't involve you, and you just need a couple of minutes of quiet. It is Chalamite. I can relate. I told my kids they could eat whatever they want and do whatever they want as long as they do it quietly so I could record the podcast. So far, so good. Okay, let's move on to something a little more lighthearted. This is from Mishbacha Magazine. Now, before you say, hey, I thought you don't like Mishbacha Magazine because they don't feature faces of women. I don't. I don't like that Mishbacha Magazine doesn't feature faces of women. I do like Mishbacha Magazine otherwise, for the most part, they do have nice articles, and I think it's chaval that they continue to use pictures of children instead of actual, real, deserving women. And that's the advice that I would give Mishpacha Magazine if they were listening to my advice. Or if my daughter was the editor at Mishpacha Magazine, I would say it is so much more beautiful to feature deserving women in a respectable, modest way than to erase them altogether. That would be my motherly advice to my daughter. 
and go make your bed. And that brings me to a lovely article in the Family First called My Mother Always Told Me, and it features all kinds of advice from women around the world that their mothers gave them. So let's let's go. I'm reading this for the first time. This is completely on the fly. So let's have a good time. When you have good news to share, tell your mother-in-law first. Oh, that's so cute. I actually have a policy that I don't call my mother-in-law ever when I'm angry which means I don't call her very often. <laughs> Just kidding. But I never, ever call her to complain about my husband. And when my husband does something that I truly appreciate, I make sure to immediately call her when I'm flying high from that experience or for that gift or from that interaction so she could have nachas for me. I'm so proud of myself. Okay, what else do we have here? This is from Shalama's Cats in Lakewood. Always cook a little extra. You never know when a mishalach may pop in. <laughs> Well, it depends where you live. We live in Miami Beach on a corner that, well, growing up, and we could see everybody from 360. So when a mashallah would come for the sixth time in one week, we'd all hit the floor. Just kidding. My father always gave mishalachim. But, you know, sometimes it got out of hand. Uh, next, uh, this is from Lakewood, New Jersey. Some advice from Lakewood. Her shoes must be too tight. That's what my mother would say whenever someone would say something hurtful to me. She meant that people only speak that way because they're unhappy or pained about something in their life. Her shoes must be too tight. I love that because my shoes are always too tight. I'm one of those people that my feet are always hurting. No matter what, I bought Crocs, they gave me blisters. I bought uh, Doc Martens, they kill me. Serious, and this is after I broke them in. And those cloud shoes, they're, 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 they're rubbing at my skin. I can never just, oat. I've tried a million times. They're the worst. Seriously, like I, I suffer in those shoes. I, don't, I gave up. I'm just one of those people that has to either be barefoot or wearing Ferragamos. Um, what else? What other advice? Here, this is good advice. To remove grease, rinse your dishes with soap and hot water, as hot as you can handle. Well, not if you live in Israel because... If you wash the dishes with hot water, somebody's not getting a shower. So that's only good advice if you live abroad. When I have fish, garlic ear, or spoiled smell in glass, plastic, or any other material, this trick works every single time. Thanks, Ma. I, I, I throw containers in the garbage. If my container is oily and, like, you know, like the water is, like, just bouncing off it, I don't even waste any time. I just throw it into the garbage, which is why we never have any containers in this house. Okay, what other advice do we have here? This is from Melbourne, Australia, in memory of Brian D. Brody. Never let your sitter get dusty. I love that, except I live in the Middle East, and one sandstorm, and everything in my house is dusty. So, But yes, I get that idea. Keep using it so that it's not uh, sitting on the shelf collecting dust. Dress according to the weather, not the season. Well, I have no, I just wear the same thing every single day, so no fashion tips for me. What else? Oh, this is from Farakway. Bring Shabbos in with calmness and warmth, even if it means freezing food or buying takeout. Well, I live by that. I buy takeout every single Shabbos. Your children won't remember the homemade food as much as they remember the tranquility in your home. Well, that's what I told my mother-in-law. We went to her first day of Sukkot and she made all the salads. She told me that she was up Matzah Shabbos till five o'clock in the morning cutting salads. Now, these are not just chaplop salads. This is chatzilim that she roasts herself, this is matbucha that she cuts into tiny pieces and marinates. This is carrot salad that she shreds by hand. This is potato salad that the pieces, the potatoes are as small as the peas. She cuts everything precisely and perfectly, and she makes 18 different salads. You know the joke, Ashkenazim have salat chai, which is a fresh salad or a live salad. And Sephardim have chai salatim, <laughs> 18 salads, which my mother-in-law does. What other advice? This is a good one. If something smells too good while it's baking, it's usually burning. 
Yes, I have learned that many times over the last 17 years. And that's why I stopped baking, because it's just not worth it. All right, hold it from the bottom. That's great advice. My mother always called that out when we were lifting a grandchild or a grocery bag or garbage. (laughs) My father actually got an Amazon delivery of weights, maybe 50-pound weights or 75-pound weights. And he picked up the box, and the weight fell out from the bottom and, and broke his toe. And we sued Amazon, and now we're billionaires. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know what's going on with that. All right. Um, but yeah, always pick things up from the bottom. Very smart. What else? If you're riding in someone else's coach, don't make him wait. I am a very big fan of that. If somebody's waiting for you, don't make them wait. <laughs> if they're giving you a ride, don't be late. There's so much good advice here. Be nice to everyone because you never know. One day you might be related. <laughs> That's Jewish humor. I always say the only person I'm not related to is my husband, which is why I married him. All right, a little Spanish advice. Lo que está ariento de la supa, solo la cuchara que lo menía lo sabe. Only the spoon that stirs the soup knows what's in it. Basically, don't judge people because you're not in their soup. Also, don't speak Spanish if you don't know Spanish. That's, that's my advice. That's <laughs> not from the article. Uh, what else? Don't do that. I don't have time to go to the hospital today. <laughs> We've all said that once or twice. Don't criticize someone unless you could do it better. That's right. Don't criticize my podcast because you don't have a podcast. And if you do, it's not better than mine. All right. What else? Um, ba, 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 ba. It's never too late to say thank you or give positive feedback. Thank you. You guys are amazing. Let your husband help you. Okay. My husband's Friday, so that rule doesn't apply. When there's a restroom, use it. You don't know where the next one will be. That is so true because I was out with my husband in Yerushalayim and I was looking for a bathroom and I have a serious repulsion against public bathrooms. It's like the bane of my existence, my biggest pet peeve. I cannot handle it, especially not in Israel where the bathrooms are not a big priority considering what's going on everywhere else in this country. So if I see a bathroom... I use it, even if it means knocking on the door of a stranger whose house looks fairly clean from the outside. And and yeah, that's what I do. And it's always a good idea. What else? Las nishkein agmas nefesh, gain weiter fundim knepel. Never let aggravation get past this button. My mother used to say that while grasping her shirt button above her heart. I love that. Las nishkein agmas nefesh, gain weiter fundim knepel. Very cute. Next piece of advice. What, what does Mishbacha Magazine have against farty people? Seriously, listen to this. Add sugar to compote, fish, tomato sauce, and soup after it has come to a boil and cooked a little already. It usually needs much less sugar that way. Well, maybe just don't put sugar in all of these things. That's a good idea. Um, my, my, my in-laws go crazy. Like, why is Ashkenazi food so sweet? Ke'ilo, I know. Like, I'm spending a lot of time in the kitchen. I have no idea. I'm just here eating it. Uh, what else? What else? Last one. If someone offers to help you and you need it, accept it graciously. Sometimes we're on the giving end and sometimes we're on the receiving end. On that note, I would like to ask you to help me get this podcast out there. So share it with your friends. Drop it in a WhatsApp group. Tell people you're listening to the Weekly Squeeze. It's so informative. It's so interesting. It's so fun. Hanala is so cool. Every week she talks about something else. She's honest. She's fresh. Too much? <laughs> Just taking some advice. All right, we now have Rudy Rockman here. I think Rudy is fantastic. He's a proud Israeli. He's also a Floridian, like I am. He takes the fight to the street. He has been on debate stages at college campuses. He is a proud Jew, and he has some very clear, concise, and meaningful opinions on how we could potentially resolve this conflict once and for all. 
and I think you'll appreciate it. It's um, he's a very insightful fellow. So enjoy. Rudy, what's up? Bo Hashem, how are you? Thank you so much for coming out here. Of course, thank you for inviting me. What's it like to be in Israel? For a Jew to be in Israel, it's like a fish coming back to water after being uh, so thirsty for so many years. When you're away, you feel like that? Because you've been away quite a bit the last few months. Uh, I'm in and out. I would say I live on Earth, so I'm constantly all over the world. But <laughs> a I'm man of the world. But I'm definitely based in Israel. Yeah, where have you been? Where have you been and what have you been up to? First, drop some exotic names so we can impress, you know, impress the people who are listening. Well, let's pick a continent from this year. I would say Africa. Okay. Uh, there's other continents that I've been to this year as well. Uh, but Nigeria, Uganda, Tanzania, Zimbabwe, South Africa, Madagascar. And in a few months, we should be going to Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, and to Ethiopia as well. But you're not traveling because you want to sightsee and just be free of responsibility. No. You, you have, you're a man with a plan. Absolutely. Yeah. So I've been following you for a while. I don't have the full scope of exactly what's happening every time you travel, but I do know that your goal is to bring more awareness to African tribes that have Jewish, uh, I guess, history, genealogy, um, and introduce them to the world and perhaps help them eventually get to Israel and be heard and seen for their plight and what they've been up to for the last couple thousand years. So what has it been the most amazing revelation so far, as of yet, that keeps you plugging, that keeps you traveling, that keeps you... Out of Israel. <laughs> well, let's talk about this story. Well, first of all, I would say that even if you're physically out of Israel, that doesn't mean that you need to spiritually or mentally be out of Israel and that there are many people who are physically not in diaspora, but mentally and spiritually very much so are. So I think there's two levels of making Aliyah, not only physically, but also spiritually and mentally. And regardless of uh, my physical body being occasionally displaced for the sake of helping Am Yisrael move forward, uh, in my heart and in my mind, I'm always in Israel. Okay. So to Africa, when we go there, we're doing a documentary series on the tribes of Israel that have been displaced to the four corners of the earth. Um, it's not just in Africa, but Africa is going to be our season one. We have plans for season two and season three and other places in the world. When, you say, when you say seasons, where is this stuff going to be streamed? Where is it going to be filmed? Where are people going to watch it? What's the, what's the plan for access for the average layman? Our goal from day one has always for it to have the most exposure possible. And so we haven't yet sold it to one of these larger streaming platforms. We did get a few offers, but they wanted creative control. And that's not something we're willing to do uh, from the beginning. So when we'll know, we'll make that revealed. Because I have a friend who has been spending a lot of time in Ukraine. She's, she travels and she's a videographer and a filmmaker. And she's trying to document the plight of the Ukrainian Jews who are now refugees. And it's really hard to get the kind of funding you need for these projects. So how did you pull that together? We're still fundraising, actually. You're but fundraising. Uh, we figured out a way to fundraise enough and to keep going. And as we get more content and more stuff to show, we show certain donors. And when you're on your mission and doing things the right way, Hashem will open up those doors. But you have a lot of missions. I do. You do. How do you sleep at night? I don't. <laughs> you don't. <laughs> I believe you. I believe you. Well, if you're following Rudy, you, you know, you, he has a lot of content on Instagram, on YouTube. You make professional videos. I just watched your video about the Hebrew language, which I thought was pretty awesome. Thank How's you. your Hebrew? Hashem. How do you say cotton candy in Hebrew? Elimusag. Come on. I never had to say cotton candy. Selot safta. Okay. Did you not know that? <laughs> How do you say it in French? Um, cotton is... Uh, uh, excuse me. I went to school in Montreal, and I took all my exams in French. You're giving me another reason yes. why I should know. Yeah. So, hmm. I never had to say cotton candy in Bal -ba -pa -pa. French. 
Say it again? Barb a papa. Barb a papa? Barb a papa. A papa. Which ah, means dad's, uh, beard. dad's beard. Yeah. So it's like grandma's hair. Exactly. I think only in, in, in America it's just this boring word, cotton mm-hmm. candy. Um, so anything related to Israel, the Jewish people, uh, and not just the mainstream Jewish people. Obviously, you're doing something that's groundbreaking that's never been done before. I can't even imagine how much the people in Africa appreciate that you're bringing awareness to their cause. And at such a price... Anyone listening <laughs> who followed what, what happened when you got arrested and ended up in jail knows that it's not as um, sababa as it might seem. You went offline for a little while. It was a scary time for you. Are, is that in the past or is that? Well, I would expect the same if the table was reversed. If we as Jews were still in Europe and North Africa and in the Middle East uh, suffering and diaspora being persecuted and exterminated and other tribes of Israel had made it back home, let's say, from Africa and had established this strong, economically viable country that's safe and we were reaching out to them saying, hey, help us, we're fellow Jews, and they were looking at us and saying, well, we don't really know who you are, we don't really care, I would expect them to come and help save us. So the way I see us going into dangerous places in Africa, which they are dangerous, is not because we want a thrill or we want a, a dangerous experience. It's because of Yeah, it's our family being killed. And so I would see it the same way as if I was born in America during a time where there was the Holocaust and I was of age to fight, I would definitely be going there to kill Nazis and to save Jews. Well, you can't save the whole world. And, you know, they say give charity to your family and then to your neighborhood. And then, you know, the circle gets bigger and bigger. And now you're here in Israel and you're watching this crisis once again unfold in front of your eyes. Terrorism is, a, is at an all-time high. How do you juggle that priority? I know that activism is very important for you, defending Israel, speaking up against lies about slander. And, by the way, um, supporting the Palestinians who might want to be on the right side of history and helping them you know, get themselves into a better situation. So how do you prioritize? I would say that for people to find their purpose, they have to ask themselves what are the problems that they see. And everyone sees different problems. So whatever problems that you do see, it's clearly a message from your own soul through your eyes that is telling you this is what you should be focusing on. Some people see one problem, some people see a few. And even with time, some people see different problems in the future than they did in the past. And so for me, currently, what I do see as a problem is the lack of identity and empowerment to the young generation of the Jewish people. Uh, The fact that as a generation in our civilization, we have no next chapter of Jewish history. There's no idea of where we going to forge next. For example, the goals of Zionism was to return to Zion, to return to Jerusalem. We did that. Now the question is what's next? And we don't even have that conversation. The third is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We can't talk about tikkun olam and ola before we do tikkun babaitim abnedodim. It's our responsibility to fix our home with our cousins, even though that we didn't create this problem. We do have the tools and the power to be able to fix it. Um, the fourth, I would say, is anti-Semitism, but that also uh, can be broken down into the other subjects because at the end of the day, the reason for why all the extremes of all different societies reject us and see us as the cause of the problem is because subconsciously they recognize that we have the potential and ability and also responsibility to prevent them from happening. I know, we're held on a pedestal, but I, and, I uh, have an issue with that a little fi- bit. But we'll talk about it. And the fifth thing I would say is the tribes of Israel being this place. Those are the current five problems that I see. And so all of my work is going towards correcting those problems. Mm-hmm. Now, how do I choose one or the other? I don't. It's the same way when They're one day... interconnected also. Bizlat Hashem, one day I'll have five children and I won't choose between which child I need to take care of. I'll take care of all five. Okay. But when you're here in Israel, do you feel like this is the source of the problem? This is a reaction to the anti-Semitism around the world? Because the more I discuss it and the more I read about it, the more I realize that the 
um, the behavior and the belief system of the left in all around the world supporting the Palestinians, it, it's, it's all kind of tied into each other. So as anti-Semitism rises and as everybody talks about the Jews on Twitter and on social media, once again, the crimes of the Israelis and the IDF are highlighted and brought to everyone's attention. So where do we start and where does this end? As far as abroad goes, you spent a lot of time in America and at different colleges discussing anti-Semitism that's on the rise in the universities. I just read now an article about Berkeley College that their law groups have like a crazy criteria now that you can't support Israel, you can't tweet about Israel. Unless you're against Israel, you can't be involved in any of these any of these groups or speak at the college. Obviously, Berkeley College is very, you know, left-wing in California. You know, this is what's actually going on. But are we surprised? No, but is it getting better? Because you've, no. you've put a lot of work on it. So no. my question is, is it worthwhile? Is, is, is there something we could accomplish here? Or are we just, you know... We're doing what we can. Well, I would say let, let's step back for a second and look at the formula that the Jewish people have had for the past 2,000 years. It is very clear that when the Jews are united, empowered, when we're strong, when we're fulfilling our purpose and going towards the direction that we're supposed to, we overcome the greatest of struggles and obstacles in front of us. I've heard you say that, but that's another that that's not a solution because you I'm not have, saying it's a solution right, it's you saying have we the need Haredim, to understand the formula okay because you have the Haredim who say that we don't need an IDF that if if there wasn't a secular Israel altogether we well, wouldn't be in the situation in the first place I don't think they're saying they don't need an IDF I think that they have a problem with the structure of the state which I would agree with them in some levels um, that we don't have a Jewish structure that it's a very western structure which it is which the and, Arabs and, don't and, respect and, well Jews don't respect it either and it's not really something respectable to begin with if you look at how members treat each other, how they speak to each other, how they run this country, there's anything but respect uh, in that regard. So okay, I think that's their um, not really rejection, but sort of critique that they have of the current state of Israel is in some ways legitimate. We don't have really a Jewish state. We have, a, you know, a good friend of mine said this once, we have a Western state with Jewish decorations. And so <laughs> now we need to have a conversation. I don't know if it's that bad. Well, the, the structure of the country that we have is not Jewish. It is Western. We have a British parliamentary system that clearly doesn't work for well, what, Jews. What does a Jewish country look like? This well, is that's something... the conversation that we need to start having. I know my what husband does has this country? every week. We have this conversation every week because my husband is a hardcore Sephardi, and he just feels like, by all means, bring it on. There should be obviously no trains running on Shabbos, and it should be a state that that the halacha, that halacha in general, is is mainstream. But but well, for, how, how for does those that things, ever happen? Those things are well. You, for example, this whole conversation of do we have public transportation during Shabbat? Maybe we don't make those public transportations public, and we make them private, so private companies could profit and make money, and it wouldn't be the state supporting that. There are always solutions that can be found for those issues, but the structure in itself of the country, the economy, the way that the society is structured, it does not work for Jews. And so, yes, we decolonized our state physically. We came back to our homeland. We mm -hmm. revived that state. But now we have to have a conversation of what do we really want to build here? Who are we really? And you know, being a religious woman, I'm sure you know a lot about Torah, and I see a lot of Torah repeating itself constantly. Mm -hmm. So who was our first leader that we had when we had our first king? It was Melech Shaul. And when we learn about Melech Shaul, we learn that he wasn't really the best king, he wasn't the king that fit the people, and eventually we evolved to having Melech David. And if we look at that, it's really the current state of Israel that we have is almost identical to the description of Melech Shaul. We wanted a king to be like all other nations, we want a state to be like all other states. Mm -hmm. But at some point, the nation evolved 
ourselves to realizing, no, we don't want a king to be like everyone else. We want a king to lead the Jewish people to what we're supposed to do. And that's when the Jewish people deserved Menach David. So if we want to have a government or a structure, I'm not saying a king, but in terms of a, a, a force that will run this country, whatever it will look like, hopefully better than what is a current democracy, then we need to think about how to get the people to that position of understanding why they want a leader in the first place. Okay, okay. So when I walk in Yerushalayim at night and I go through the shuk and I see people dancing on tables and, you know, this sense of looseness and I would even say, uh, well, obviously secularism, but it almost crosses the line to profane sometimes that I, I can't imagine that we're, you know, a, a short walk from the Kaisal or the Kotel. So do you feel like this plays a part in the problem on the ground, like the Palestinians right now who are riding, respect Israel less because the people who live here are, are not religious and don't have uh, you know, religious values that, that plays into that? Or is that just another one of the million excuses that they use to terrorize us? Well, I would say that the current state of morals for, let's say, my generation, millennials and younger generations also, Gen Z has gone very low. And I don't think that's connected to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but there are conversations of how to get humanity back on the right track, of respecting one another, of understanding that there's consequences to actions, of respecting our parents, you know, which is one of the first things that we're told to do. A lot of these things are not happening, and so we're seeing the consequences of those stuff. But for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the reason why I think the majority of Palestinians are rejecting Israel or cheering when something negative happens to Israel is because the way that they're taught and contextualize their experience and their suffering is that the reason for why you suffer is because Israel exists. So if Israel doesn't exist, you don't suffer anymore. Now, me and you both know that that's not true. You know, for example, a year and a half ago when we had the riots and the conflict and everything that was happening on social media and on the ground, at some point you had the Al-Aqsa uh, area, right, what we call the Temple Mount, mm-hmm. where it was the Beit HaMikdash, you had a tree that caught on fire because there was Correct. a, a firework that. that was shot by Palestinians onto that tree. Right. Now, what did Palestinians see? What they heard in their medias, because not everyone was there, not everyone saw the Palestinians shooting, what they heard was that the Jews lit this tree on fire and that they're dancing by the Kotel to the flames. I know, but you know that everything is spun. Everything right. is... Right, and, and that's what I'm saying. real coming out when of Gaza. When it's spun and they see that, it, I can understand why someone would want to come to the conclusion that Israel is bad. I know, but they're brainwashed from when they're children, so everything is bad. It's like there's no way to win that, that, that well, fight. Well, I mean, the Germans were also brainwashed at some point. Right. But if you go today to Germany, I would say most people are not brainwashed by the Nazi regime. I know, but it took it took a, a holocaust We're before not that have happened. Any short term answers? This is a long term issue, so we need to think about this long term and take it seriously because we're talking about the future of the next generations, and it's not something that's going to change in one conversation or one immediate policy. It's I know, something but I that feel like it change. always goes back to Israel and the Jewish people with you. Why isn't the blame directly on the Arabs, the Palestinians? We have the power. Radical Islam. Oh, we have the power. How we do, do we have power? We we lost two soldiers this week. Of course, another, yes, another two but families that's not are mourning. How is that power? I'm saying the people who have the power in this land are the Jewish people. Now, those who Good. run that power, of course, I believe we should have the power. Those who run that power is the government. Now, the Palestinian Authority does not represent the Palestinian people and the majority of Palestinians that you it's ask them. Not true. Seventy percent of Palestinians. Sixty. I looked this up. Sixty-seven mm-hmm. percent of Palestinians support using terrorism as a way to get out of the occupation. That's nothing to do with the, the Palestinian Authority. 
I'm talking about specifically the Palestinian Authority as the source of legitimacy for rule amongst the Palestinians. If you see the, any of the polls or ask any Palestinian, the majority of Palestinians will reject and even hate the Palestinian Authority even so more than Israel. So let them revolt like the Iranians. But Israel does not let them revolt because Israel wants to keep them in power because that is an enemy that you know. And I understand that for the short term that that may give security benefits because you don't have another stream of terrorism coming from somewhere else that you can't control. But we, at some point, we need to free the Palestinians from their current reality. So, for example, if something happens in Yudav Shomon to a Jew, what happens the next day? The, the IDF will go and find that person and there's going to be a trial or that person will be killed in a gun trial, whatever it will happen. There's going to be justice for what happened. Okay. If a Palestinian gets shot or killed or tortured for saying something openly pro-Israel or for talking about a reality where Israel and Palestinians should live together, which happens all the time, right. there's no justice for that. Okay. So any individual leader that can bring any other idea and truly lead and represent their people cannot stand up because they're living in a reality where they're not allowed to. And Israel has the ability and the power to free them and to allow them to stand up. I know, up. but when I think of Palestinians as someone who's living here in Israel, not far away from them on a regular basis and who has children walking to and from school every day, I see thousands of very strong, very intimidating uh, young men with machine guns. To me, it's extremely scary. All of these people are willing to murder, maim, you know, kill any Jew they get their hands on. They're, they're, they're prying the gates apart so they can somehow get in under any situation and kill any Jew they could get their hands on. And, and I don't I, think that's the majority of Palestinians. But the, who, who's, look at the funerals that took place today. You just see thousands of them marching and chanting. And I, I, I find it hard to believe that, that it's, it's just that they're doing a great job with their, with their, video, their videos and their... their Every, everyone, everyone's living in a movie, right? Just everyone's living in a different movie. That's the problem. We're not all a part of one consciousness. So before the state of Israel was created, we had the British that were here. And Jews used terrorism to force the British out. One of the phrases that a good friend of mine uses is that we made the price of occupation more expensive than the benefits of exploitation. Meaning what the British were getting here in terms of profits and returns at the end of the year was less than the amount that they had to pay in human lives or resources from the terrorism that the Jewish people were doing. And that's when the British left, Mm -hmm. okay? Now, the Palestinians see us as foreigners and think that by using terrorism, we're eventually going to leave because we're realizing that we're losing more than we're gaining. The problem is that when you use terrorism, which is an anti-colonial tool against a native people that just so happens to be 100 times stronger, they're going to respond 10 times stronger. But I also don't believe that they really think that we're not from here. They really do. I don't. I, I can't, how? My, my husband's my because husband's they party. Don't, my because husband? they live in a different movie. I, and the movie that they lived in, they've been told from day one that these Jews are from Europe. They're not real people. They took your houses. They took your homes. And you're suffering. And one day... they barely had a life here. They were living in huts. Whatever, they had nothing, whatever, no structure. Whatever you think was the reality is irrelevant to what they think is the reality. What we need to understand is how they view the world, how they understand the world, how we view it, and how we can make the movie that we're experiencing the same movie that achieves the aspirations that we both have and ends the suffering that we both have. Okay. You don't believe in this two-state solution? Absolutely not, because okay. it does not fulfill the, the, the needs of either peoples and it will only cause suffering for both. Okay. So absolutely not. But again, there's uh, several options that we have on the table. 
Either they kill us all, we kill them all. We obviously know that's not going to happen. Either we kick them all out, they kick us all out. Obviously, that's not going to happen. Another two choices is either we continue the status quo or we actually sit down and focus on why is this conflict happening? Who is benefiting from it? And how can we create a reality that allows us to move forward But from that? But that means that you believe that the Arabs are on any level, trustworthy, they could potentially be our neighbors in peace, and that... Why do you think they can be? I don't I don't trust any of them. Why? I think, because I... I'll tell you why. Because I am very matter-of-fact about these things, and the same way I know that as an Ashkenazi, half-Polish, half-Austrian Jew married to a Sephardi, there are certain predisposed uh, ways that I see the world, and, and, and Arabs are the same way. I don't think they're trustworthy. I think they... All lie. I think they're drama queens. All Arabs lie? Many of them are liars. I think it's part of their culture. I do. I think they're very overdramatic. The women are always tearing their hair out, screaming like lunatics. It's, it, it's, they, they don't have the same value for truth and for integrity and for morals as, as, other, as Western culture. For sure not as the Jews. How many, how many Arabs do you know? How many Arabs do I know? Yeah. I, I, not many. I'm not going to lie. Not many. And I, and I think that's the issue. When you start meeting some of these individuals and realize that there's a human being behind them and that the average person is actually a good person, like you'll find in most communities in the world, you'll realize that this image that we've been given is actually something that's not actually true. They're giving it to us. They present it to us. Again, it, when, when a Palestinian does a terror attack, I served in the IDF. I still am on reserves. I do reserves maybe once every few months. If there's ever war, I'm going back to the yeah, front well, lines. they're calling up reserves okay? now. I have, I have a gun on me right now in case something happens. Mm -hmm. So I'm not someone who is a pacifist who's saying peace and love. I hope that we get peace, but the only way that we get peace is to create a reality of justice. And there's no reality where either population will disappear. Palestinians are not disappearing and we're not disappearing either. So at some point we have to create something better. And if we want to go and take this to Torah, because I know that we both believe in Hashem and in right. Torah, Who are the Arabs? Who are the Muslims in the archetype story? Ishmael. Ishmael. Right. You know that Yitzhak and Ishmael at the end of the life of Abraham make peace? Not specifically. Specifically. Where? They make, when, when, okay. What happens is the reason for why Ishmael hates Yitzhak from the very beginning, we understand it psychologically. He's 13 years old. He was raised his whole life until 13 years old as being the son of Avraham, the one and only son that he's ever had. And out of nowhere, because neither did Sarah or Avraham expect having a son. They thought that would never happen. That's why his name is Yitzhak, because they laughed at the idea. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden at 13 years old, Avraham has a son called Yitzhak. When Yitzhak is born, Sarah forces Ishmael and Hagal to be kicked out so imagine what's going on in the mind of a 13 year old that wakes up one day has a baby brother and all of a sudden him and his mother gets exiled and banned and everything that he had all of a sudden gets removed but it's a nature okay it's a nature. what happens to that child that child comes to the conclusion that the reason for why he suffers the reason for why what he was supposed to get is no longer given to him is because isaac exists and he starts to hate isaac not because of who he is because he never knew who his brother was but because of this thing that was taken from him. Now, how does this eventually change? Okay, when Sarah dies, what happens is that Yitzhak goes to Abraham and he tells his father, bring back Hagar. It's something that Sarah would have hated. He's going against his mother, but he's doing it because he's putting his ego to the side and he's telling his father, I know this is what will be best for you. And when Ishmael hears this, he's like, how could this person that I hate so much that I see as a monster do this great act of selflessness. It doesn't connect. So all of a sudden he starts realizing that maybe this person that I hated my whole life is not this person. And he goes through a process of 
finally reconnecting with Yitzhak. And when Abraham dies, they come together, they bear the father, and they do make peace. And Ishmael says to Isaac, you actually go first to visit our father. So he actually tells his brother that you will be the leader. Okay, but it's short-lived because here we are now. <laughs> no, it's an archetype story. There's no peace with Esav and the extremes of Esav. There is peace with Ishmael. And the reason for why we don't like each other is because we don't know who the other is. I know, and but what about the what about the, the Sephardim that were living in Morocco and Iraq and on and all these countries where, I, I mean, I've done enough reading to know. Yeah, my that family they, was kicked out in 1948. And not, there's a lot of, th- not just kicked out, like the, there's this idea that they were, you know, nursing each other's babies and everything was la-di-da. It was not like that at all. They lived under very, very... Well, I would very, say very, that very Europeans and Christians were far worse than any Arab experience that Jews had 100%. in different places. But still, they stole their money. They made them wear... The, the, the yellow star came from, from, from the Middle East. Okay, it didn't but, come from, from but, Poland. But why do all societies, always, every few generations, the extremes of those societies get to the conclusion that the Jews are the problem? Why? Why? Why I think is it's it? Built, I think it's baked into the cake. Into every, every, but it's not just Arabs and it's not just Christians. It's almost every single society that Jews have lived in. The society will come to the conclusion on their extremes, right? Look yeah, but in America. that's gaslighting. That's like saying no, 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 no. That, that you're. If, if you're get, if, if you're fighting with your husband and your mother, then there's something wrong with you because no, no, no. you I'm happen s- to be I'm fighting saying with your if, husband if and your mother. If we look for two thousand years, wherever Jews have lived, right, it takes a generation or two for the extremes of that society to get to the conclusion that the Jews are the problem. If you look in America, the far right, the far left, the religious, the secular, the white supremacist, the black supremacist, every single extreme group gets to the conclusion that the Jews are the problem. Okay. Who hates black people? Usually white people. Who hates women? Usually men. One group is usually against the minority group. But for Jews, every single group Correct. is against us. Why is it? It's not because that we're jealous. Because it's it's a vicious cycle. It's a vicious cycle. Because the Jews are oppressed, they work harder at succeeding. And because they succeed, then they get oppressed okay. because people are jealous so and want to put I've, them down. I've heard this argument before, but if you look at America, the ethnic groups that are the recent migrants that are the most successful are Koreans, Indians, and Nigerians. I don't see any hate movement against those people to the level of what the Jewish people experience. In New York City, we make up 13% of the population and over 56% of the total hate crimes are against Jews. That does not explain it. Okay, so then maybe religion plays into the mix. How does it play into the mix? I suppose they feel like we're superior or that we are the chosen people or that God is on our side and that's something that makes everyone... Do you think we're the chosen people? I, I do. And what does that mean? That means that we are the ones, and you've said this many times before, that are meant to be a light unto the nations. We are held to a higher standard. We have a chosen um, role in this world and we can't just sit back and, and live when we our don't lives do it, what without happens? responsibility. Everything falls apart. Okay, and all the nations will blame us for everything falling apart. Okay, so then again, it comes back to religion. Because no, it Jew- comes back to the Jewish people chose to take on this responsibility. I see it as, let's say the world is one body, and every nation chooses what role it plays in the body. It can play the role of one organ, it can play the role of two or three organs, five nations can play the role of two, it's not binary. What is the role the Jewish people chose? The Jewish people chose to be the body's immune system. Tikkun olam, healing the body, olagoim, empowering and enlightening the other body parts and other humans around the world. That is the role of the immune system. When the immune system in the body does not work, the body becomes sick. And all the other organs, they're not conscious about why it's sick. They just know that it's sick and they know that the immune system had a responsibility to prevent that. So they will always come at the extremes to the conclusion that the Jews are the problem. So if we really want to end anti-Semitism, yes, 
We need to fight back. Yes, we need to defend ourselves. Yes, we need to be strong, but we need to also do what we're meant to do. Because if you look at it historically, because those who are maybe less religious, less connected to Hashem, might not connect to this. But there's clearly a historic formula. Whenever the Jews are united, are strong, are fulfilling their purpose of Tikkun Olam and Ola Goim in their homeland, we overcome all the greatest of obstacles and civilizations that no longer exist. And whenever we're divided, we're going against our purpose, assimilating, going against from who we actually are, that's when anti-Semitism rises. So if we want to solve for the equation and get the right variable, we have to re- put in the right plugin. So that it's simple as that. It sounds simpler, I think, than it is because, uh, you know, we're looking at it. Uh, we're sitting here having a podcast talking about it on a very intellectual level. But at the end of the day, right now, they're riding and the soldiers are in all these neighborhoods and it's a dangerous, scary time. And uh, I'm living here for five years and I feel like every week or two, there's somebody else that's sacrifice on behalf of this you know and it's going to continue happening until we change the equation i know but why hasn't anyone figured it out by now there's a lot of very intelligent people running the show here i mean we can say that about anything throughout history there's always been intelligent people but sometimes it takes a generation to just click into formation and realize that we have the potential and ability to do so so let me ask you as a podcast show host that has a lot of people listening and a lot of people who are not in israel interested specifically in the details of what's going on here who don't understand the Palestinian mentality, don't understand the technicalities, the politics, any of it. They just kind of hear what I'm telling them from here, you know, my opinions about how, de- you know, deplorable this behavior is and this, the nonstop terrorism. And, and I, I, don't like, I don't like making excuses for it. I just feel like there's a million excuses for it. Sure, we could excuse everybody for everything, but, but at some point, they, they have to take responsibility of also. Of course, of course. I think that people who are terrorists have to go and get sentenced and get very harsh sentences. But and they're all potential all, terrorists. Pro- no, they're not. Oh, that, that you can't say that. So many the, of them the are whole, potential. The whole, so, it's part so of their It's like, like saying humanity, every human is a potential rapist because some people can become. We can't say that. Of course, any person on any society of any civilization can potentially be someone bad. But that doesn't mean you get to be labeled as someone bad before you as an individual go and do something. So we need to see a reality that Palestinians are not going to disappear. So this like equation that we've been putting in that it's either us or them is clearly not working. So let's try something different. And the terrorism is always going to happen until Palestinians can live free. And they don't. And even people who say, well, why do the Israelis in Haifa and in Lod uh, the, that are Arab and they're, you know, living amongst Israelis and they have Israeli citizenship and they have all the same rights and they have good lives. Why are they against the state of Israel? Well, imagine you were living in a country where, where you're living, you have equal rights and a good life, but your family right, your brothers across, the, right. across the river, across the line or across wherever it is, very close by, are suffering. I know, but I always say the same thing. It's their fault. <laughs> so what do you want from me? It's uh, literally your fault. Regardless I of you. whose fault it is, is now that we have the power, what I'm saying is it's our responsibility to clean this mess up and to change the situation. Because I'm not interested in playing blame on whose fault it was. I actually don't think it's the Israelis' fault or the Palestinians' fault. I actually think it's the British people's fault. I, I, I believe that to be okay. true in so, many ways also. The, the, I'm reading Golda Meir. I mean, I just finished it, Golda Meir's um, biography. And the way she describes the behavior, I mean, it's shocking how they got away with it and that Israel didn't hold it against them. Like uh-huh. all these years later, like we don't have an issue with with the British and considering 
just the extent of the damage they did, the few you know years that they were here. It's like I mean, this is what the British government did everywhere that it colonized. If you look into Afghanistan, India, Pakistan, even in Nigeria, they divide and conquer. Start the civil war, and it's exactly what they did to us. And we ended up fighting a war that we're still fighting. I know where but we do you are really... now. It's our responsibility to clean up this mess. We just talked about what is the purpose of the Jewish people. Right? How do we do that on a global level? Where does this end? I had uh, you know, a conversation with somebody who supports going up to the Temple Mount, and he says that by going up to the Temple Mount, where you are allowed to go, you are sending the message to the Palestinian people, as well as to Hashem, that we are ready for Mashiach, and that we are physically going to bring ourselves as close as possible to the Temple Mount, to the Beis HaMikdash. That's the only solution, Mashiach, for the Palestinians to know, and for, for the Jewish people to know. So do you think that's the, the tactic to take, to, to go up and and, and and show that we're going to bring Mashiach and there's going to be peace. And I mean, the Arabs know I mean, about I, Mashiach. I don't think we need a show. I think we need to do. So it's not about going for showing. It's not to, oh, let me put it in your face that I went up to the, like, for sure, I think that Jews should be able to go there. And I think we need to build a third temple as soon as possible. And I think we need to realize at the Kotel as well, that we need to drill a big hole through and make a door and go through what's actually holy, which is what's behind it. So I definitely support that, but never just for show. It's not by showing that we want Mashiach that we will get Mashiach. It's by applying what we need to do, that the formulas that Hashem gave to us, and Mashiach is an accomplishment. I actually don't see Mashiach as a person coming and all of a sudden everything will be saved. I see it as a result of a a series of I think it's a result of a generation that realizes what they need to do and they actually go and do it. And once we accomplish that, then we'll get to this reality where there'll be peace on earth and everything will be working and flowing the way it's supposed to. If you look at all ecosystems, they usually work, right? You have the bees that go and pollinate the different trees in order for the plants to grow and you have the ants that clean up the different animals that have been killed and you have the cattle that are grazing the leaves so the leaves don't become everything works together the only species in this world that does not work are the human beings right so i think that the purpose of the jewish people is to find a way to get the jewish people to recalibrate and to come back to this world that we've been disconnected from hurting and we need to all live as one and remember that we're all a part of one so however that happens and whatever that looks like which is beyond our time to be able to predict and we also have to be open and a little bit humble that we don't know what the future looks like before covid no one could have imagined that this would have happened right. and that completely changed the world and the way people saw things right. so there might be other things that are going to happen very soon that will completely change whatever ideas we had could have been a solution to getting to wherever we want to go to. Okay, well, two two more thoughts before I let you go, because it is Cholamayir, and I want you to go enjoy your experience here in Israel. <laughs> um, there is the concept, though, as far as culture goes, because that is something that, you know, that it, it exists. The, and, and connected to our relationship with Hashem, we can love Hashem or we can fear Hashem. And the best thing is really to do both. So when it comes to the Arabs, don't you feel like there should be this uh, combination of force, because that's just a culture thing? You know, they respect people who, who are clear with their boundaries and are consistent. And then we could, you know, bring the love aspect in where we're all brothers and we live in peace. But I don't think we could just do the love with Arabs. I think they need force. I definitely think that we need to be strong on all elements and on all levels. Um, when you say that in the Middle East, this is how it works. I will agree with you. You need to be strong in the Middle East. If not, you're going to die. However, that being said, I would review the way that the Quran views the Jewish people. There's two names that the Jewish people have listed in the Quran. It's either Yahud or Bani Israel, which we call Bani Israel. Mm-hmm. Whenever we're called Yahud, it's almost always something negative. It's almost always Jews that are assimilated, that are sinning against Hashem, and we have the instruction to kill them and attack them. Well, and they go call ahead. us Yahud when they yell in the street. Right. 
But then when the Quran views the Jews as Bani Israel, it's the people of the book, the people that you have to respect, the people that should not be converted to Islam because they are already the original Muslims, the people that we need to follow. So why do they see us as one character and the next? And depending on how they see us is how they to treat us. the best us. and worst versions of ourselves. Exactly. So when we start acting like ourselves, that's when the problems will go away. And we see that also, if you know right now, the fact that Palestinians are called Palestinians is very symbolic because right when Israel came back into the land and we had our first king, we also had the Plishtim. Now, given they're not this polytheistic nation from the island of Crete that are not the same thing as Palestinians which come from the Middle East, they're not the same people. But the fact that there's the same name repeating at the same time in history where the Jewish people again are coming and being sovereign on their land does tell us something. And what do we look at that? When did the Plishtim end up no longer being a problem for the Jewish people? When David Amalek was strong, we discussed this Nahon. on Israel. When David Amalek becomes king and realizes that the Jewish people have a role to play and they go put that into practice, that's when the Plishtim no longer become a problem. And that is the answer for this world. If we want our problems to go away, it's first about strengthening ourselves, realizing who we are, what we're meant to do, and going putting that in practice, and then people will respect so, us. So when, when the nation was you know established in 1948, the, the Zionists, leadership they, they were secular Jews you know religion wasn't part of part, part of the Mostly, conversation yes. did, did that create an actual you know like when you scratch a seed it grows out crooked you feel like just not having the religion part of the the Hakamata and Medina it no. affected us in the long run I look at it similar to first of all when we had a bad king like Melech Shaul that doesn't mean that the whole entire nation revolted against Israel and said well, this is no longer legitimate they just asked for a better king so if we didn't have a good government or a good system in the beginning that doesn't mean we toss everything out it means we need a change and to evolve yeah, into well, something BB's else yeah well politics are very different from Golden so, Ears <laughs> for sure and I, I would look at it in, in a different perspective the way Rav Kook talks about this is that we have two Mashiachs the concept of Mashiachs we have Mashiach Ben Yosef and Mashiach Ben David so some people see them as two individuals. I see them as two realities that we get to. Mashiach ben Yosef is a more physical reality, which is what we did with Zionism. So we can conclude almost that Zionism is Mashiach right, ben Yosef. That's why that accomplished this shell, this physical uh, space that we have to then bring in the soul in the time of Mashiach ben David, which our generation is has a responsibility to achieve and to get this reality where we have a balance between all. And when you look at an Israeli society, you have problems in the religious side as well. So sure. it's not to say that there's only issues with the secular side. Sure. And what I do you think mean? The fact of saying halal on Yom Ma'ut is, is controversial and, you know, that there, ties into right, what there, There's many issues. So when I look at it, it's like when you have, we've become almost uh, ideological tribes in this land. The right, the left, the religious, the secular, Ashkenazi, Sfaradi. But all these pieces are a part of the puzzle. And the religious side is a part of the puzzle. You think and everyone the secular, has what to offer? Everyone has a piece of something that they're carrying that is important for the entire image that we're supposed to be. And we need to find a way to bring all those elements of truth together rather well, than the using them as weapons <laughs> against each other. Right, because even the Shvatim—that's that, another thing that we don't even have enough of our people in this land to really be who we're supposed to be. Is that why you're so zealous about bringing the, the African tribes? I would back? say that it, it started by doing something that's the right thing to do. The same way I looked at it, really. If I was suffering in Europe, where my dad's side of the family had been living in diaspora, or in North Africa, where my mom's side of the family was living during diaspora, and that these people, these tribe members, our family had made it back home, I would expect them to come from us. So first and foremost, that's the reason I'm doing. 
doing it. But after being to six countries in the past year in Africa, I've realized that each one of these communities is holding on to another element that we're missing in this land. For example, Ashkenazim, which my dad is Ashkenazi, held on to this genius, uh, analytical mind that they have that allows a lot of them, not all of them, to exceed in sciences and physics and math and in writing and engineering. My husband always says Ashkenazim are all the pilots in the army. Right, but it also comes with a lot of trauma and a lot of uh, neurotic behavior sometimes mm-hmm. and anxiety and some things that have happened from the genetic trauma that they come with. And Sephaladim have a clear connection to spirituality. It doesn't even have to be explained the passion, how, the how Hashem, yeah. the, the love, the, the energy, the and yeah. also they're great merchants. You know, they also have yes. their own skill. So, what I'm trying to say is that every single diaspora group took on something and brought it back and there's still many pieces of the puzzle that is missing. And when you have a puzzle and you smash the puzzle into a million pieces and the majority of those pieces are not back on the table, you won't know how to put the puzzle pieces the together. Picture, right? Okay, what do you say to the secular Jews that live in America and sit there in their fancy offices and are writing articles left and right about how the Palestinians are being oppressed by Israelis and that the whole situation is completely twisted and backwards and, you know, that whole self-hating Jew situation. Like, what do you say to the, that whole conversation? Well, before, what do I say to them? It's why are they being like that? That's, I think, the, the real question. And so I took a class one time in university that was a psychology class, and they gave an example that I actually related very much so to the Jewish people. They talked about a woman that was being beaten by her husband in a traumatic experience and the three ways in which a woman can respond to that situation. Option number one is a woman would be prepared and knows how to fight back and even if such a thing were to happen, that then she would go and fight and get justice and make sure that person is exposed and goes to prison. And she takes that first route of fighting back. The second option that a woman goes through those experiences is to make excuses. It was just one time. He didn't really mean it. He was just drunk. And to kind of put it to the side and not really deal with it. And the third option is to blame herself and to say, no, it was because of me. I shouldn't have done this or I should have done that instead. And when you look at those three different reactions to trauma, it's almost identical to the way the Jewish people deal with anti-Semitism that we either experience or have inherited. Number one, fight back and stand up, which I would say most Israelis take, including Mm -hmm. myself and yourself as well. Number two, ignore, which I would say most Jews in the diaspora take. It's about Israel. It's not about us Jews. So let's just put it to the side. Oh, whatever. It's going to go away. Oh, if you do something, it'll just, you know, just put it to the side. And the third thing is to blame themselves. And it happens from the left to the right, from the religious to the secular. You have Natolikalta Jews. You have Jews that have become neo-Nazis. You have Jews that have joined the far left. It's coming from a place where they need to react somehow and based on what they know and based on their education and their level of observance, this is the way it's coming out. But you, So you're saying these Jews are actually blaming other Jews because... Themselves. Yeah, other they're Jews blaming is other, themselves. other Jews is they're themselves. Blam- they're blaming themselves. But the damage that they're doing. But they don't understand that. If, a woman, if you see a woman, right, that's your friend and you don't see her for 20 years. She gets married and eventually psychologically gets into a situation over years where she's with a husband that's beating her. And you ask her, how could you be living? You have a black eye. This guy is horrible. How could you be doing that? And she's like, no, no, it's actually my fault. I deserve that. Would you look at her and say, you're a self-hating woman? Or would you say, wow, you're really broken. (laughs) I, I need to help you. Right. So when we look at our own brothers and sisters that have come out that way, out of the trauma that we've experienced, as the Jews who've come out stronger, we have a responsibility to help them, not just go and insult them and put them to the side. Who's going to help them if not us Jews? And who's going to be ready for that? You think the Jew that's making excuses for our problems is going to be the Jew that's going to help them? No, it's going to be the Jews that are strong and that deals with our situations head on. Very interesting. I never thought about it that way. So it all ties in to the fact that 
it's up to us. And obviously, like you said, everyone reacts in different ways. But our goal has to be to take time before we just lash out and act erratically and just stoop down to their level. And, you know, listen, I'm coming at this. I grew up in Florida. I made Aliyah five years ago. I never had to deal with Arabs. I didn't grow up having this conversation. And now that I'm living here, the whole thing became very real to me. This is, like you said, this is the way I project my frustration with Arab terrorism and all that and the Palestinian people and so on and so forth. And with the leftist uh, self-hating Jews who tend to write very, very, I mean, it's, it's essentially blood libels, half of it. I mean, I read it and, and, and I, I, I want to tear my hair out. It's like, and I'm watching it here on the ground and the way it's twisted. And then I see that the author of the article is a Jew. And it's like, an, it's like a double whammy. It's like, not only are we getting kicked here, but we're also getting kicked abroad. It just feels like it never ends, and nothing we seems to do, nothing we do seems to be enough. But what I'm taking away is that we can fix this from the inside out. Well, we know that at some point we get to a reality called Mashiach. Either we bring it on, or time will get it to come on. And if that happens, it's usually going to be in a very violent way, in a very ugly way. So, <clears throat> if that violent way is Plan B, what is Plan A? If anti-Semitism is a reaction of the Jewish people not fulfilling their role in, in assimilating, and it's usually also what gets us to be sparked on and come back to the land of Israel and wake up, what is plan A that we don't need that in order to get to where we need to go to? Right. Those are the questions we need to ask ourselves. We need to step out of the current debate right in front of you and realize the bigger game that's actually happening. And a lot of people ask me, when you get into these debates with these people who hate the Jews, who hate Israel, some of them are Palestinians, some of them are neo-Nazis, some of them on the left, some of them on the right, how do you stay calm? And I tell them, I'm realizing that in this moment, the reason why this person hates me is not because they know who I am. If they knew who I was, they would actually like me. So the reason that they hate me is not something personal. It's because something false was taught to them and they were told that the reason for why they suffer and contextualizing all their trauma is because of me. So it's actually a very beautiful opportunity that I have right in front of me to correct that, to heal that, to give that person's first experience with a Jew to be not only something positive, but something like you said of fear. Right? That guy was actually very strong. He stood up for who he was. He could put lines. He made me have to realize that I needed to respect him, but he was also very respectful to me. And so you have an opportunity whenever you get in this situation to heal. Wherever there's darkness, we spread light. We don't need to put more darkness where there is darkness. That's not our role in this world. Our role is to put light. So whenever situation, whether on the micro level of a debate with an individual, whether someone anti-Israel or a Jew turning against Israel or the Palestinian or whatever else, we have to look at the bigger picture and say, how do we fix and heal this situation for the reality to come out into something that works for all of us? And there's always a way to do that. Now, it's again, easier said than done. And I'm saying it to something broad. We have to go into specifics of each situation, but it is something that's possible and it is our responsibility to do that i absolutely love that and with that i'm going to let you go enjoy your hog and the holiday should bring blessing and light into the world just because we we connect with our religion on in that way and what can i say i i I appreciate your thought process and your insight and i know this is something you care very much about and i wanted to have this conversation with you because i knew there were things that i simply was not getting. I am very empathetic and it hurts me that there are people in the world that are suffering and I don't want to live with an enemy in my midst and constantly obsess about it. I would love that that peace. So whatever I could do to bring that closer, if it means 
you know, raging less about Palestinians in my podcast, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do that. Well, peace <laughs> is just a product of uh, a reality of justice. So how do we create that reality that we all experience justice? Once we have that, there would be no reason for us to fight each other. So let's focus on how do we use our energy to go there? Because when you're having this reactive energy, that's fire. That's actually a power that you have. Some people don't have that. You know, you're coming at a place where I have this energy and I have to let it out and I have to do something with it. That's a superpower. Some people don't have the ability to do that. But when you have a fire and you just spread it everywhere, you're going to burn it people destroys. that you might like and people that you may not like. But when you use it as a laser, you can pinpoint it and you can create things that Look are fun. Look you. You're full of great analogies. Amazing. Now I know why everyone loves you. Rudy, thank you very much. Well, there you have it. If you enjoyed this week's episode of The Weekly Squeeze, by all means, share it with a friend. On WhatsApp, on your socials, sharing is caring. That's why I'm here every week, Monday and Thursday, to bring you all the exciting and popular Jewish news wherever you are, whatever you believe. It's all good here. Don't forget to head over to my show notes, donate to Bread and Butter, and I will see you next Thursday.